From Washington, this is the CQ Budget Podcast, your leading Capitol Hill source on how Congress allocates federal taxpayer dollars. Welcome back to the CQ Budget Podcast. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker. And we are really at a remarkable moment now in this two-year odyssey from by Democrats to pass a major domestic spending and tax package that's gone by many names. But it really does seem now as though Democrats have the votes they need to pass this in a strict party line vote in the evenly divided Senate in the next few days after a long journey with this announcement Thursday night from Kirsten Cinema, the big holdout that she's ready to move forward on this package. So we want to talk about what this means, what it is, and where things go from here. And to do that, I'm joined again by Peter Cohn, the tax and budget policy editor at CQ Roll Call. Welcome back, Pete. Thanks for having me, David. Great to be here. So we had big news, and Kirsten Cinema says she's on board, but they had to make a number of tweaks to this bill to win her support. Yeah. So right now where things stand is they still have to go through the parliamentarian review, which is what happens with every budget reconciliation bill. They have to sit down uh, with the Senate parliamentarian and her staff and go over all the provisions in the bill that might run afoul of what's called the Byrd Rule after the late Senator Robert C. Byrd, um, who authored these provisions basically designed to keep extraneous provisions out of a budget reconciliation bill. Because reconciliation is such a powerful tool that it can pass with a simple majority vote. And there's very few things that, that you could say that about in the Senate. Most things, most legis- all most legislation needs 60 votes. So to keep really big policy changes uh, that are unrelated to, to the budget, to changing levels of taxation and, and spending, the Byrd rule says that you can't have provisions that don't affect the budget. But not only that, you can't have something that's that may have a budgetary impact, but it's really just major social policy or major energy policy or, or something else that the budget is kind of an afterthought. So the parliamentarian said, you can't raise the minimum wage in the, uh, in the budget reconciliation bill last year, the American Rescue Plan, the big pandemic relief bill. She said, Elizabeth McDonough is her name, uh, been around a long time, veteran of the Senate, said that liberalized immigration policies could not be part of reconciliation bill, even though they have a, a huge budgetary impact. She, you know, opined that to do that in reconciliation, you're really just trying to affect a long-sought policy goal of uh, of one party to do that, and the budget is kind of an afterthought compared to that. So that's what they're doing right now. They're looking at all these provisions in the 700-something page bill that may sort of have an ulterior policy motive where the budget is secondary. Yeah, that is the big caveat here to this this announcement that that Democrats have now united on this on this new revised bill is that we still don't know which of these provisions will pass muster with the parliamentarian and which won't and then that could still change the bill going forward and then does that erode any support. And there are several pieces of this Pete that that could be challenged and could be stricken from this bill, right? Yeah. So there's a number of things in here that that have raised questions about whether or not now the bird rule is very subjective. Now, you know, this par- this parliamentarian, other par- parliamentarians before her have, you know, really tried to to stick to the letter of the bird rule. But there are a lot of things there's you know, you put program you put new programs 
in a bill, you gotta, you've got to have some guidelines about how they're going to spend the money. So those are called terms and conditions. So the Byrd rule very specifically allows that, you know, you've got to have, if you're going to be eligible for some sort of benefit, whether it's a tax break or a new government program, there's terms and conditions under which you can qualify for that. And so to actually make some of these things work, you're allowed to, to put terms and conditions in the bill that may not directly in and of themselves have a budgetary impact. So somebody might say, well, look, that provision section, you know, 25C, uh, that has no budgetary impact, but the parliamentarian might rule that, you know, without that provision, the rest of the provision, which is fine under the bird rule, just doesn't work. So there, it's incredibly complicated. A lot of it's pretty subjective. But for example, you got a lot of clean energy tax credits in this bill that have a lot of conditions on them. There, there are rules, basically, they have to comply with what we know is the Davis-Bacon requirements that wages on projects uh, funded or assisted by federal uh, federal programs or federal subsidies of some sort, um, you have to be paid the same as other workers in the industry in that in that area, part of the country. Um, there's other rules about apprenticeship programs; they have to be part of registered apprenticeship pr- programs. There's rules about when you get to the electric vehicle credits. There's a big fight about, you know where the parts going to be sourced from there's domestic content and and not just domestic content but there's rules that say you have to to bring the parts in from countries that we have a free trade agreement with and they can't be from countries that are so-called countries of concern where there there might be you know state-sponsored terrorists on the state-sponsored terror list so you know things like that that somebody could point to and say look that is not a budgetary provision it ought to come out of the bill. And there's stuff on the drug pricing side too, the insulin provisions, the insulin caps on insulin out-of-pocket expenses. A lot of questions about with the uh, prescription drug language. There's a, a tax that's basically supposed to force behavior on the part of the, of the drug makers, but it's really not in and of itself expected to bring in any money because the expectation is they're going to all be complying with this anyway, the new drug price negotiation language in there. So, you know, there are a lot of things that potentially could be challenged. So what happens is the parliamentarian will will say, okay, here's a list of the things that you need to either fix to make them compliant with the bird rule, or they're going to be vulnerable to a challenge on the floor. And then at that point, the writers of the bill can say, okay, we're going to go fix that. Or we're just going to let the chips fall where they may go out to the floor and fight it out. And so if somebody raises a point of order, and somebody, by the way, some senator has to raise a point of order that says that violates the bird rule. And so once that happens, they get a ruling from the chair, which says, okay, that violates the bird rule. And then the point of order is, is, is allowed. And then the defenders of that provision have to get 60 votes. So right there in the evenly divided Senate, you know, you're not going to have any Republicans. It's pro- that provision is probably gone from the bill. And so it just comes right out of the bill. And then they keep going about their business. And they go on to the next amendment or the next bird rule challenge or, or what have you, or what have you. So it doesn't kill the bill; it just takes that provision out of the bill. Right, but I guess the key question there is: Are enough of these provisions stricken that it jeopardizes support for the overall package? And we don't know. Although 
it's hard for me to believe after all this that it would jeopardize the whole package. Uh, they're going to do whatever they can to make sure that enough of the package complies with the Byrd rule, or they're just going to dare Republicans. You know, the Republicans are not, you know, again, the Voterama is an unlimited process, technically. You know, there's no cap on the number of, of motions they can offer, the number of amendments, the number of points of order they can raise. Which is why but, it could go on for days. Potentially. Yeah. But, you know, you also got to remember you got the August recess coming up. People are tired. These are, you know, let's be fair. These are not, um, you know, y- the youngest and most sprightly of, uh, of individuals in the Senate. Um, you know, they, they want to eventually get some sleep. So, you know, Senator Richard Burr yesterday, um, who's a smart guy, he said, look, we're just going to go until we're exhausted. Right. <laughs> and so w- when are they exhausted? We don't know. You know, um, typically these have gone in the past. They've gone till three, four, five o'clock in the morning if they start the afternoon before. But, you know, last year with the rescue package, it got held up on the floor for many, many hours because Senator Manchin was negotiating last minute fixes. So it delayed everything until about one o'clock in the afternoon the following day. So it's it's totally up in the air what happens. But there's but I guess, you know, the bottom line is there there's a limited number of things that they're going to want to challenge. They're going to, the Republicans are going to pick their spots. They're going to go after the things that they think will have the, the maximum political impact on vulnerable Democrats up for reelection this fall. And the things that they have, that they think will have the most, the biggest chance of success. So, um, you know, they may lose if they try to go after the insulin provisions, you know, Senator Warnock, who's the prime sponsor of that on the democratic side, who's also got a tough race this fall, said, you know, have at it. You want to try to strike. That's a really popular part of this bill. If you want it, you want to try to strike that out of the bill, you're going to pay a political price for it. And maybe the Republicans lose a couple of votes on their side if a point of order is raised against that. So that's the kind of calculations that are happening right now in advance of this um, process that's supposed to kick off tomorrow. So there's all of these parliamentary challenges that we're going to be facing that we don't know the outcome of. But but Pete, let me go back to Kirsten Cinema a minute because we 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 didn't address. She won some concessions here for her support or her qualified support for this package that changed several of these of these tax provisions that that were supposed to raise some big money. Yeah, well, I think you know we knew going back to last fall when the House Democrats they started this process back in September. You know, pretty shortly after Labor Day. 2021, and they had a whole host of tax increases in there that many of which were in President Biden's budget first budget request. But you know they were all pretty much things that we've seen before, things we expected: raising individual tax rates, raising the corporate tax rate. Carried interest was in there. Now carried interest. This is a long time goal of Democrats on Capitol Hill. Not all Democrats, but uh, I mean, going back to around 2007, they've been trying to equalize the tax treatment of carried interest, basically treating, so carried interest is the share, if you're an investment fund manager, private equity, real estate, venture capital, and you have a lot of long-term holdings, basically these funds, they have what's known as a two and 20 rule, the 2% management fee. They're compensated with about 20% of the appreciation value of their holdings when, you know, once they're, once they exit those holdings. And that's treated because most of these are long-term investments held for longer than a year. You you know a, a, ca- a capital gain on a whole on an asset you sell after a year is treated as a long-term capital gain, which is a lower tax rate. So you know for years 
these guys were getting during the Bush the Bush years, they were paying a 15% tax rate on their long-term capital gains, which was their share of their clients, their investors' gains, because it's their investors' money that, that they had, but they get that 20% piece of that because they're great managers and they made all this money for their clients. So anything held longer than a year, you get the lower tax rate, 15% during the Bush years. It went up into about closer to 24% uh, in the Obama years, but still that's a lot lower than the top rate. You know, the top marginal tax rate fluctuated between about 35% in the Bush years up to closer to 40% in the Obama years. And then it ended up about 37% where it is now under the Trump tax, tax bill in 2017. So still think about that. 24% rate versus 37 or 39.6%. That's that's a pretty good deal. Cute. So um yeah. So you know for years Democrats have been trying to say look, that's not your money. You're the, just the fund manager. You're not putting your you know, you don't that's not your skin in the game. It's a little different in some industries like real estate where a lot of those these little family partnerships they are putting their own skin in the game. So anyway, they they carved out real estate. They said, okay, real estate's not affected by this tax. So, and hedge funds, a lot of people go after saying, oh, this is a hedge fund tax. It's not really because a lot, most hedge funds are trading in and out of their positions. Uh, it could be on a, on a daily basis, even a minute to minute basis. So they don't have a ton of long-term holdings in a lot of cases. And that's, that's not true in all cases, but hedge funds are much more short-term oriented. So you're really talking about private equity venture capital. And those are two sectors, particularly venture capital, that have a ton of support among not just Republicans, but Democrats. So they fought this provision off since 2007 when it was first introduced. So, um, and, and it, it looks the like fall, they just won. It looks like they just won again because cinema wanted this yeah, taken out of the bill. Right. Well, cinema said, so last fall, we knew this was coming because after the, it was in the house bill and cinema went to the White House, basically, in the Democratic leadership and said, I want that out. I want that out. I want all the rest of the, of the rate increases out. If you guys want to raise revenue, you got to do it another way. So carried interest came out of the bill. The bill, the House passed last November. That was gone. Remember? They took out the rate increases on individuals and corporations. They came up with this minimum tax, this 15% minimum tax on so-called book income or what's reported to shareholders. On, on companies 10ks and financial statements. So that's what they ended up with in the mansion deal that he cooked up with Schumer a couple of weeks uh, last week um, was all right, they're going to bring the, they're going to keep that book tax in there, raised about 300 billion dollars. They're going to bring back carried interest. And by the way, they didn't consult Senator Cinema about that. They just did it. So in the meantime, Cinema is hearing from all of these home state companies that you know, this book minimum tax, basically we're paying a minimum tax that gets rid of the benefit of our depreciation and expensing deductions under the tax code, which are totally legitimate. And it, it's an incentive for companies to invest, but the minimum tax is going to take that, some of that benefit away for some of those companies that are paying admittedly very low effective tax rates, but still that it takes away some of the incentive to invest. And that so, Republicans hit that hard. They went they hit that that hard. big time yeah. to try and, to get rid of that. And it seems like they succeeded with cinema because she, she 
she got a provision in there to soften the impact of that. So they softened it. Yeah, we haven't seen the, the details yet, but uh, it certainly looks like it's it's you know the manufacturers were kind of cautiously. The National Association of Manufacturers put out a statement last night, pretty cautiously optimistic about what they were hearing. So, you know, we'll see how that goes. So anyway, those but are the they deals. Also imposed, they also imposed a new tax on stock buybacks. Yeah. So stock buyback tax was also in the earlier iterations of the bill. And Cinema never had a problem with that. None, none of the Democrats really had a problem with that. It was a 1% buyback tax estimate, you know, now it's going to raise something close to $100 billion, you know, so they're going to make up a lot of that lost revenue. The carried interest tax, by the way, was only $13 billion. So they can drop that and not miss a beat. The, uh, they're going to lose a little more revenue from the, the manufacturing and uh, depreciation carve-outs that they're doing in, in the book tax. But the buyback tax raises a lot of revenue and, you know, it doesn't have too, too much of an economic impact. I mean, the Chamber of Commerce this morning came out strong against it, like as expected, they always do. But, you know, a lot of independent uh, analyses look at that and say, um, you know, this is com- companies can do two things to, to return value to shareholders, and that's buy back their own stock and pay dividends. So what's what might happen here? You're going to see fewer buybacks and more dividend payouts. Now you get some revenue, you get some extra revenue out of the out of paying dividends, because as the investor, you're going to get taxed on those dividends every year at tax time. Whereas with buybacks, you're only going to get taxed when you sell your stock. So, and companies really do prefer buybacks in a lot of ways because it gives them flexibility, because they can just sort of announce buybacks whenever whenever it's convenient for them to do that. They don't have any you know, truly attractive investment opportunities at that moment, they can say, all right, we're going to buy back our shares and we're going to, you know, increase value for our shareholders that way. Because the overall value of the company is not changing. It's just the number of shares in circulation. So the value stays the same, fewer shares, value of those shares go up, and then you sell that stock and you make a killing. And then at that point, you're taxed and you might get the lower capital gains rate at that point. <laughs> Whereas, you know, with dividends, um, you know, you're getting taxed all, every year constantly. So, but one thing this problem for companies is with dividends is if you start paying higher dividends, you got, you have to keep doing that. You don't have a lot of flexibility because once you start cutting your dividend, then investors start running for the hills. So a lot of companies really like to do buybacks as opposed to, to boosting their dividends because it just gives them that flexibility. And again, it's a lower tax hit on the investors because it's capital gains. You can just defer that tax until the cows come home, until you want to sell. So, you know, this is a, but, you know, it, it gives the Democrats, progressives have long despised stock buybacks. They think it's just this, you know, it all it does is benefit shareholders. It has no, you know, value to workers. It just, you know, that's money they ought to be paying in wages and hiring and not just rewarding shareholders. So progressives love it. Cinema's evidently signed off on it. It's got you know, it's got legs at this point. So uh, Chuck Schumer did say that with all these changes, the net effect is still to reduce deficits by about $300 billion over the next 10 years. So they can still claim this is not inflationary and this will help um, help with the red ink, which is a key part of their of their pitch here for what they're now calling the Inflation Reduction Act, although that does 
increasingly sound to me like a misnomer. I'm not sure there's much evidence it's going to reduce inflation. We've had a lot of nonpartisan co- reports this week come out and say they don't see much effect on on this cutting inflation. Yeah, I mean, we got to see we got to see what the numbers look like at the end of the day. I mean, they're, sure, you know, they're still sure. they're still talking about you know I think 300 billion is kind of that magic number that out, that's out there. You know, Mansion's kind of latched onto that, and everybody you know everybody's saying all right, 300 billion in deficit reduction. That's got to be kind of our now whether it ends up at like 290, we'll see because they're talking about doing things like adding drought relief money, which is was something Cinema wants, and other senators from Western states like Hickenlooper, right. John Hickenlooper from Colorado. So, you know, we'll see where they end up. And the insulin provisions are going to cost money. So that we haven't seen that in, in the full CBO score yet, if they remain in the bill, subject to the Bird Rule review. On the other hand, on the other hand, this new stock buyback tax raises a lot more revenue. So. Right. Yeah. So we'll see where they end up. Yeah. Well, you know, if it's maybe it's 310, maybe it's 290. As long as they can kind of say it rounds to 300 billion, I think that's kind of the talking point they're all looking for. So, you know, we'll see where that goes. They're in a much more positive place on this than they've maybe ever been because <laughs> Manchin seems like he's ready to go and cinema seems like she's ready to go. Yeah. It really does seem like it really does seem after two years, like it could finally happen. It is of course, we should say a much smaller package than what they started out with last year, like three and a half trillion dollars. This is, you know, this is about six trillion. Remember, you know, Bernie, well, that was, Bernie an, that was one, a little yeah. more fanciful, I think from the progressives, but they had like, basically three and a half trillion. And then it went down to like one and a half trillion. And now we're at, this is supposed to, we don't know anymore the exact numbers, but it could raise- Well, the spending, yeah, spending in there is probably going to be about 400, something like yeah. 450 billion. So it's a lot smaller, but still they it, it would be a big win for Democrats in terms of clean energy, reducing greenhouse gases. And of course, a big thing is is cutting the cost of prescription drugs. That's If it survives the parliamentarian, we still don't know. But that's been a long-time goal of Democrats to let Medicare negotiate directly with drug manufacturers to cut prescription drug prices. This does it in a limited way, only for a certain number of drugs, and it doesn't even start until 2026. That's a long time away. So I don't know how much political credit they're going to get right now for that because it's just going to take so long to get going. I think some of the inflation caps start a little sooner on that. But yeah, in any case, look, I mean, the, you know, the Affordable Care Act subsidies are going to go into effect that, you know, that, that's going to head off the premium hikes um, that a lot of these uh, consumers were uh, were bracing for. Um, it, it's a big win, you know, right. and, you know, the CBO said, "Look, this is not going to have. This is going to have a negligible impact on inflation this year, next year. They can't really estimate beyond next year. So this is not okay. <laughs> let's let's be honest. This is not an inflation reduction act. All right. Now, it's not really an inflation, a huge inflation, you know, um, an exacerbator either. So it's it's kind of an, the inflation neutrality act. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you will, and you know, but there's a lot. Yeah, I mean." Just the fact that they're they're passing this, this is a huge, huge deal for the Democrats who really have been facing some major headwinds going into the midterms. You know, I, I don't know that I, I haven't talked to a single person who thinks this is going to help them actually um, reverse what we're likely to see in November in terms of the, uh, the at least in the House. You know, it looks pretty, uh, it, it's kind of a doomsday scenario still. For the Democrats, but you, you never know. But that certainly seems to be the case. But in the Senate, you know, there are things that are uh, are, are looking more positive. 
these days. Um, you know, there's some candidates, I think, from the Republican perspective are, are, that are not ideal. And um, this is a big deal for some of these, you know, Warnock in Georgia, if the insulin provisions and other things, in, in, you know, get, get done. I mean, the clean energy stuff with the solar provisions, solar manufacturing is big in, in Georgia uh, and, 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 and many other states. So, you know, this is a huge, huge deal. So the Dems have been getting some wins lately. They'll, they'll get a lot of talking points out of this, but we should say Republicans will be happy to use this too on the campaign trail. They've been they've been adamant at at attacking this package, saying it's going to raise taxes right on the cusp of a recession. That's the worst thing you can possibly do. They're going to say it it's raising taxes on the middle class, which Democrats deny. It depends how you define things, um, and so they'll they'll be using this too. I think I think this this package is going to be a prime issue on the campaign trail this fall. Yeah, I, it's a little tougher, I think, for the Republicans to. Um, to paint this as it's, it's a bit of a, a tortuous argument to say this is a big giant middle-class tax increase. Um, the numbers do show that from the joint committee on taxation, but if your effective tax rate that you're paying, your average tax rate that you're paying to the IRS next April is no different than what you p- were paying this year, then it's hard to see this as a tax increase. It, you know, might the JCT says, all right, this might have some effect on wages. It, wages might not go up as much as they were supposed to. Your, you know, shareholder returns might not be as robust as they might be otherwise. You know, in the absence of this, it would only be an indirect effect. I mean, there's no, there's certainly no tax rate increases on the middle class here. It's, right. it's all. I mean, the, it's pretty. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty clear that this is not. There are no. Direct, let's you know, no rates are going to go up on anybody. There's this minimum tax, which is fifteen percent, which, by the way, the corporate rate is twenty one percent. So this is not. This affects about one hundred and fifty companies. The buyback tax. It's really hard to paint that as some giant, you know, tax on the middle class. It right. really is because I mean, you know, the vast majority of stock ownership in this country. You know the total market value is really skewed towards the top of the income distribution. That's not to say they're not going to be. You know, again, you and I have four hundred one k plans, David, Alan. You know, uh, everybody else who's listening. Um, you know, could there be some? Look, everybody's four hundred one k's have sank like a stone this entire year. All right, a little doing a little better lately, but it's hard to say this buyback tax or, or you know even the book tax the minimum income tax are going to, um, you know, somehow lead to this precipitous, you know, destruction of wealth in this country for the middle class. So anyway, I'm not saying Republicans don't have any good points. They do some of these things. I mean, the EV credits, you know, if you're making $50,000 and the price of a a Tesla is, you know, $40,000 and you're going to get a a $7,500 tax credit, I don't really know that's going to benefit you. It seems like it's probably going to, you know, more likely benefit someone making two hundred thousand dollars. But anyway, my my opinion is immaterial. We'll see what happens this weekend. They're about to get rolling here, David. Yeah, we got a long way to go. We will follow it closely, and of course, once it gets through the Senate, if it gets through the Senate, it still has to come back to the House for a final vote. We'll be covering all that, but that's all the time we have for today. Thank you, Pete, for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for listening, everybody. And thank you all for listening. 